Hello, welcome to Cap Times Talks, a podcast bringing you smart conversations about big topics in our city. Today, we bring you a talk with Kathy Kramer about the politics of resentment in 2018. Kramer is a University of Wisconsin-Madison researcher and the author of a 2016 book called The Politics of Resentment. In it, Kramer describes her visits with people in rural parts of Wisconsin and the feelings those people shared with her of having been forgotten and left behind at the expense of people who dwell in cities. Kramer spoke with Captime State political reporter Jesse Appoyant about the book, the role of the politics of resentment in 2018 elections, and how people can bridge the divide between urban and rural communities. This talk, sponsored by Home Savings Bank, was recorded earlier this week before a packed house at the High Noon Saloon. Take a listen. Well, I told people they should come to this if they were fans of politics or resentment, so I'm assuming you're all here for the resentment. Uh, but thanks, everyone, for showing up. This is a really great turnout, and we're really happy to have Kathy Kramer here. I'm going to talk about some of the things that she's uh, learned already and, and some of her predictions going forward in 2018. I assume a lot of you, uh, since you're here tonight, are probably pretty familiar with her work, but I'd like to just start by giving Kathy a chance to talk about why she got started down this line of research, um, how it sort of evolved once you from, from the idea that you had when you got started and where it's gone from there. Thanks so much. Well, it's really a pleasure to be here. And I have to say, I never thought I'd be on the stage at the High Noon Saloon. So <laughs> this is pretty awesome. Um, but thank you all for coming. Um, briefly, back in 2007, I was a political scientist at the UW-Madison and really interested in how people make sense of politics. And for a variety of reasons, including the fact that I love this state and wanted a great excuse to travel around and find great pie and diners and such, I designed this study that would get me out and about around the state um, uh, listening to people talk with the people that they know. Because I knew at that point in my career that if I wanted to understand how people interpret politics, the best way to do it is to listen to them talking to people that they know in the places that they normally hang out in. So I sampled communities across the state because I wanted a wide variety of places. I wasn't looking for a rural versus urban divide. I honestly didn't know it existed, even though I grew up in Grafton and lived most of my life here. Um, but I was looking for other things. But I invited myself into conversations in places you know, diners, gas stations, McDonald's, so forth and so on, and just listened. And about a year in, it was um, just undeniable that there's this really pervasive and pretty intense uh, resentment towards urban areas in our state among people in our smaller communities. Not everybody, not the same everywhere, but in general, what it sounded like was people in our smaller places, in our rural places, feeling like they're getting the short end of the stick, that they're being left behind, they're not getting their fair share of attention, not getting their fair share of public dollars, and they're not getting their fair share of respect. And that really caught my attention. And as time went on, it was clear it was pretty important politically. How did you uh, establish the trust that it took to get in with some of these groups? I mean, talking about that urban resentment, you're coming from the, this large university and arguably kind of the most liberal urban area, maybe besides Milwaukee in the state. 
Well, helped I was really naive, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, I, so I would drive out to you know a small community in my Volkswagen Jetta. I'd stay in the Super 8 the night before, and then I'd wake up early and walk into a, a diner or a gas station and say, hi, I'm Kathy from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Do you mind if I join you? And they said, sure, and looked at me like I, I was a little nuts. But then, you know, I introduced who I was, and I said, really, I'm here to, to listen and understand. I study public opinion, and then they would talk with me. And I think if I had gone into the study knowing the resentment that I came to learn about, um, I would have been much more reluctant to do that. And so I don't know if I ever gained their trust, but I think returning a second time and a third time and a fifth and a sixth and a seventh, that conveyed to them I was really sincere about wanting to, to know them and understand what they were thinking. And so I don't know if we can call it trust, but um, we definitely, they, they came to know that I was sincere about wanting to understand. And the, the book, the research is called The Politics of Resentment. Boiling it down, what does that mean? Yeah, well, the resentment is this sense of, you know, we're just not getting what we deserve. We think we deserve more. We're working hard. It seems like what we do deserve is going to places, to people that don't deserve it. Um, and that's generally the resentment I'm talking about. And when I say the politics of resentment, there's both that underlying opinion, but then there's also the politicians that tap into that resentment. And so it's both ends, it's both parts, right? It's both the sentiment and it's also the willingness of politicians to, to make something of that resentment, to tap into it and make use of it. So this book came out and then the 2016 election happened. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, we, we knew about it in Wisconsin, but all of a sudden people around the country are saying, hey, uh, there's research on this, explaining this phenomenon that none of us saw coming. What has it been like getting this national attention, having people coming to you for answers on something that you probably never saw going in that direction in the first place? It's been wild. <laughs> I mean, it's been really humbling. It's been really um, pretty awesome in a lot of ways that so many people have um, come to me wanting to understand and that it's it's made the effort definitely seem worthwhile. It's also put me in contact with all kinds of a wide variety of people around the world. And so it's been an amazing experience of interacting with so many people who care so deeply about democracy and want to figure out a way to do it better. Um, there definitely have been days when I wish that the book I had written was not the politics of resentment, but was something like the politics of dancing or the <laughs> politics of chocolate cake, you know? I mean, it gets a little tiring after a while to be the woman, you know, she's the one who wrote about resentment, you know? Um, but it's, it's, it's been amazing, and I'll say probably the most amazing, I, mean, I, I don't know how to, but one story, I mean, I'm sure you're all wanting some great stories tonight, so here's the best story, at least recently. Not that long ago, I get an email from a woman, Katie Gray, who works with John Stewart's production company, and would I set up a phone call with her to talk about a movie they're thinking about making? And I say, that sounds really interesting, sure. So I get on the phone and Katie says, hey, thanks so much for taking the call. Really excited to meet you, to talk with you. Okay, so just hold on a second. I'll patch John through. Oh my God. 
<laughs> oh my god okay and he's hysterical from the get-go you know he's coming on the phone and he's like merging calls merging calls here i come so that was awesome in and of itself but at the end of the conversation he says so kathy if i come out to wisconsin would you make time to meet with me <laughs> sure um let me check i'll get back to you right now and <laughs> What happened was we ended up taking a two-day road trip, <laughs> me and John Stewart and Katie Gray, <laughs> and yeah, it was pretty fabulous, and um, <laughs> fabulous in a lot of ways, meaning, I mean, yes, so he drove all the time because he gets car sick if he doesn't drive, and so it's me and John in the front of this rented SUV for 10 hours of driving, plus a night in a Super 8, and you know, I mean, in separate rooms, that sounded weird. <laughs> Um, but also it was awesome because he really he is both hysterical and super thoughtful and really well informed so it was really great conversations and he was also um, if you're not a John Stewart fan I hope you still appreciate this that he was extremely generous in many ways with all of the people we interacted with, with the wait staff at the restaurants we went to, with his kids when they would call up, you know, and I should say with my parents. <laughs> so it's a long story, <laughs> but um, I ended up taking them to my home in Grafton, Wisconsin to meet my parents, and that was pretty fabulous, seeing, just having them meet one another. So it's been wild. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, well, I mean, that seems sort of like, like good evidence of, of just the way that people have been feeling like they're trying to play catch up with this thing that you were finding out for 10 years almost before it started to even register on other people's radars. Uh, why do you think what happened in 2016 was such a surprise to journalists, to political observers, to elected officials themselves? I think it's mainly to do with the way we spend our time and journalists and political observers, political consultants, meaning the way um, news media have been so decimated, right, in terms of the money available to spend on news media um, and just the, the demands of that profession. Um, there, there are few people who spend extended periods of time in the national media here in the so-called heartland, flyover land, whatever label you want to put to it. So that's part of it. Another part of it, too, is the way politics works and the way people involved in politics spend their time is over time. It's um, been... People have decided it's more efficient to spend time in the cities. Maybe um, the Democratic Party in particular, that um, you know, in an election you mobilize your base and you try to persuade the people on the fence. And the base for the Democratic Party, many people you know, consider the cities to be the base, so let's focus there in terms of door-to-door -door work, advertising, communications, candidate events, so forth and so on. So in many ways, these smaller communities have just been ignored. And I think that was part of why, why many people didn't see it coming. Yeah. Um, something when you and I have talked that struck me a little bit is the fact that uh, politicians themselves are coming to you asking you to share what you know with them. And I think that surprised you a little bit. Why is that happening? <laughs> well, I think they don't actually have the time to sit down and listen to people, right? I mean, 
In the last, take the governor's race, for example. I mean, in the last gubernatorial race, Scott Walker spent $36.4 million. And so if you imagine an election campaign is a year long, that means raising $100,000 a day. And if that's your task, you don't have time to hang out in diners and gas stations, right? And I think that they don't actually have the, that kind of knowledge of what are people saying when they hang out with one another and drink coffee. So do you have some sort of secret key, some secret knowledge, or is this something that people can find if they just have the time to sit down? It's pretty simple. I mean, not everybody can walk into a gas station and say, hi, I'm Kathy. Would you mind if I join you? Um, but it bas it's basically two main things. And one is listening, a, a willingness to listen and actually convey that your, your point is to listen. And another is respect. And the two go together. I mean, showing up repeatedly conveys respect, showing up repeatedly to listen. And um, if you listen with respect, I think you're going to get people to open up more than if you're conveying contempt. I think a phrase that we heard a lot in 2016, which we will probably continue to hear, is economic anxiety. And what does that mean? And is it code for racism? Is it something different? Are they one and the same? Are they conflated? Are they... How do you answer that when you've got the question a lot? Uh, what's, what's your take on it? Well, my answer, my short answer is they're intertwined. But that this question has taught me how difficult it is to be a voice in the news media or in media because the answer is, is complicated. And so I'll be a little more complicated here and then I'll come back around to why they think they're intertwined. But I mean, the, the sad fact of the matter is that Racism is a huge issue in this country. And, you know, we just have never come to terms with the fact that we are, this economy started as a slave economy. And that doesn't just mean that some people were not paid for their labor. It means that human beings were tortured, uh, that human beings, their children were ripped from their families without their consent and sold away, and families never saw one another again. And... When that happens, um, in order for that to happen, the people making it happen have to tell them story, have to tell themselves stories so egregious and so um, intense. It's going to take a long time for those stories to change. Meaning, in order to have that kind of system, you have to really dehumanize. Uh, an entire group of people. You have to convince yourself that they're less than human. And unfortunately, those stories still stick with us today. I mean, we know that from work on implicit racism in which there's everybody in U.S. society associates at a subconscious level darker skin with bad and lighter skin with good. Having said that, that, I mean, racism is that much of an issue and continues to be. When a reporter from New York City calls me up after the election and says, so tell me about the KKK, my response is, you have no idea what you're talking about. Because that isn't what's going on here. I mean, racism is operating not at that, yes, sometimes at that level. We do know the KKK is alive and well in this country. But what happened in Wisconsin is much more complicated than that. That when people are saying to me, we deserve more, we think 
that we are working very hard and we deserve more attention, resources, respect than we are getting. And we think that other groups of people are getting more than they deserve. That is both economic anxiety and racism. So it's complicated. <laughs> it's complicated, and, but we can't dismiss the racism component, but we also can't tell ourselves the answer is simply racism. Does that, I hope that that makes sense. It's, um, I, just, I think it's too simple of an answer. to. The reason I try to complicate it is because as soon as you say the answer is racism, it turns your mind off to all the other complexity in it. While we're going down the isms path, sexism, another complicated ism. Um, I know you, you did a ton of interviews. Uh, one of them was in Scientific American. They asked you, when, when you're talking about Hillary Clinton maybe not being feminine enough or not being womanly enough uh, for, for people in the areas that you're talking about, you were asked, is that sexism? You said maybe, basically, but you didn't really want to put that label on it. Is that sort of the same idea, or why didn't you want to call it sexism? Yeah, well, that sounds like a really silly response, <laughs> I have to say. I mean, because if the question is was part of the, you know, the animosity towards Hillary Clinton was part of it. Was was it? If the question is, was it sexism? Yes, part of it, right? And I, but I say part of it because also in that case too, um, when people expressed animosity toward Hillary Clinton to me, sometimes what they were talking about was Washington D.C. And this perception that she stood for Washington D.C. and that she also stood for corruption, and so sexism is definitely part of um, negative attitudes toward Hillary Clinton and has been for some time. But there was there were a variety of reasons that I heard people uh, opposing her, for sure. So in 2016, uh, resentment largely was uh, taken advantage of, it seems, for Republican electoral victories. Um, what do you think happens in 2018? Do Democrats tap into it? Does this continue to be something Republicans can be successful at? Is it both? Great question. Yeah, I mean, it would be, it would be amazing if neither party tapped into it. It's a powerful force, right? And it's clearly, um, yes, we can expect both parties to tap into it. I mean, there's there's quite a struggle within the Democratic Party, about, right, about what, so what does this look like? What does this future look like? Do we now try to spend more effort um, courting white voters in rural areas and small communities, or do we double down and face, um, just try to court voters in the cities? Time will tell. I mean, that's a huge struggle, I think, within the state Democratic Party as well as in the National Democratic Party. Um, but I mean, we can see, you know, Governor Walker definitely knows that he can make use of that resentment, and, and um, you know, it was interesting when Mayor Soglin announced his candidacy, right, and his tweet was the last thing, I mean, I may get this wrong, <laughs> verbatim, but I think this is verbatim, the last thing we need right now is more Madison. One of the issues, it, it seems like it'll be uh, one in coming elections, regardless of whether it's positive or negative, is, is the Foxconn deal. Um, still getting national interest even today. I saw some national reporters taking a look at uh, the latest uh, financial numbers on it. And, and it seems like it's sort of the kind of issue that could prime itself for that kind of geographic resentment because it's something that's concentrated in one area of the state. 
Um, and it, some of the rhetoric we've heard opposing it seems to sort of tap into this a little bit of what are you getting uh, if you're not in southeastern Wisconsin? Do you think uh, that's something that's going to play into the resentment factor a little bit? Possibly. I mean, I, I've had a chance to spend time with about six of these rural groups um, since the last election. And, and in recent months over the summer, um, the Foxconn deal has come up a bit. But you know, my time with these groups is not necessarily representative of all folks in Wisconsin. And there's been some polling on how people across the state are feeling about the deal. But what I've heard in these conversations, it, there, there are some grumblings about how is that that factory in that corner of the state going to help us out here. So it it depends how both parties play it. Uh, so how much of, of this resentment is directed toward just the establishment in general, regardless of the party attached to it? And is that something that may just be a backlash against incumbents going forward? Yeah, well, um, yes, incumbents do have their work cut out for them. Uh, I think a lot of this resentment is is directed towards politics in general and politicians in general. And, and partly I say that because when I ask folks, you know, which party better represents the concerns of people around here uh, in any type of community, small, rural, um, urban, suburban, usually what people say is, well, neither. Neither party's listening to people like me. And that is just a general sense that politics is out of whack. Um, it depends who you're talking to, what's wrong with it, but a lot of people talk about money being uh, um, just a crazy force in politics, um, that politicians are crooked. I mean, you hear that time and time again. And so, yeah, there's a, just a, there's a resentment towards the establishment, meaning the political establishment, for sure. Do you think in the, in the long term, I mean, traditionally you look at incumbents of, as being advantaged in elections. Do you think in the long term that may change just because of that anti-establishment attitude? Not necessarily because money is such a big deal, right? And when you're incumbent, you're greatly advantaged in terms of your ability to fundraise. So whether that will outweigh uh, the public sentiment against the establishment, um, we'll see. Um, on the note of incumbents, uh, 2018 is going to be kind of a weird year because there are two pretty prominent incumbents on the ballot, Scott Walker, a Republican, Tammy Baldwin, a Democrat, about as different as you can think of, and yet the you know assessments of those races is that they're both probably advantaged because they are incumbents. Do you foresee uh, a 2018 where Wisconsin could elect both of them? And how? Yeah, it's possible. I mean, the the incidence of split ticket voting, where people vote for one Republican and, and one Democrat. I mean, a variety of candidates from part, you know, variety of parties on their own ballot is definitely decreased and pretty rapidly so in the last ten years. But um, it's still possible. And and when you just take the Senate race, it's that it's the case that in Wisconsin. Uh, First-term senators almost always get reelected, which will work in Tammy Baldwin's favor. I mean, I think the last time that didn't happen was maybe 1913. And it also tends to be the case that when the senator running is of a different party than the sitting president, that senator tends to be reelected. So both those things work in Tammy Baldwin's favor. 
But it's also an off-year election, meaning not presidential election, which disadvantages Democrats. <laughs> so there's kind of ver various things working for and against Tammy Baldwin. Um, the amount of money being put into the gubernatorial race um, to, to support uh, Scott Walker probably will disadvantage Tammy Baldwin. will probably roll over to uh, help um, also support the Senate, Republican Senate candidate, whoever that turns out to be. So it's a little bit hard to say, but um, it, I think given the way split ticket voting is declining and the amount of money we can expect in the gubernatorial race, um, and also the fact that there's been $3.1 million already from outside money spent against Tammy Baldwin, um, it, it, I would, I would say it's more likely to be, uh, not a split ticket outcome. Sure. This question kind of, uh, piggybacks on what I just asked, uh, and that, that's just how do you explain, uh, the fact that Wisconsin has elected politicians as disparate as Scott Walker, Tammy Baldwin, Barack Obama? Well, the fact is that we're a closely divided state, right, and that, you know, for example, Donald Trump won by three quarters of one percentage point in the 2016 election. It was a close election. And so there are lots of Democrats in the state and lots of Republicans. You wouldn't know it from the composition of our state legislature, given the way that the districting has um, been drawn such that the Republicans are greatly advantaged in, in, the, in the state legislature. But um, Wisconsin is both a closely divided state and it's also historically kind of prided itself on being a place in which people choose how they want to choose and not being told who they're going to vote for. And I think that has something to do too with kind of outsider-ish, voting for outsider-ish candidates um, and the fact that sometimes it's Republicans, sometimes it's Democrats. Someone else from the audience wants to know, uh, did it help building trust with your sources that you came from Grafton? Oh, probably. I mean, you can hear it in my accent. Like, clearly, <laughs> like, I'm from these parts, right? <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think. I mean, sometimes, so my, my dad's a very famous football coach. He's in the Wisconsin Football Coaches Hall of Fame. He's right here. <laughs> um, and so, you know, so I could pull that one out sometimes, like, oh, your dad is Kip Kramer. Oh, yeah, sit down, <laughs> you know. Um, so, yeah, I think it probably helped a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, another audience question. For how long have we had the politics of resentment in Wisconsin? If you could put a time frame on it. How Well, how long has it been the case there's been a, rural versus urban divide in this state. Probably forever, right? But how long have we had a situation in which politicians are actively tapping into that divide? Um, I think it's relatively recent. And I should back up also to say that even though probably throughout human society there's been a rural versus urban divide, if you will, kind of a, a sense that all the good stuff is in the cities behind the wall, right? And we can't get at it. Um, but it's, it's also in the case that in Wisconsin, some of our what we consider to be our smaller communities were clearly thriving much more than they are right now, right? I mean, there's places where Main Street is boarded up, where there are also homes that, you know, decades ago had ballrooms on the third floor, right? At least some of our logging communities were glistening, thriving communities. 
And there, they were hours and hours drive away from Madison and Milwaukee. And so that part has changed. But also the willingness um, of politicians to, to make use of that divide. Um, I think it has ebbed and flowed in our history, and, and we're sort of in a moment now. I grew up in Marinette. It's one of those logging communities that had the homes that had the ballrooms on the third floors. So it's crazy to hear about that. But um, yeah, I'm 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 curious. I guess when when we're talking about how you you wish that it wasn't resentment that you <laughs> had to talk about all the time. Um, obviously, it's been successful. But do you think that there's a, a way for politicians to find success in trying to go the opposite direction and trying to bridge the gap and trying to talk about the, the good of different places in the state? Um, or is it just sort of the cynical truth that resentment is going to get more votes? Well, I think the change is going to come from here, from you all. I mean, I think there's politicians and people running for office in the room with us. Bless your hearts. It's a huge job. But what I mean is in, in part, of, part of the um, joy of this past year for me has been this ability to be in a room with people who really care about these issues. And they tell me their stories about what they're doing to try to bridge divides. And um, I can give you two great examples that are represented in the room tonight. So one is Reach Out Wisconsin. Avi, where are you? Okay, right on. So how many, how many of you have heard of Reach Out Wisconsin? Okay, great. So Reach Out Wisconsin has an event coming up on Thursday in which they're bringing together the chair of the Republican County Party and the chair of the Democratic County Party I'm saying that wrong. Um, this Thursday at the VFW in Cottage Grove. And um, they have events like this every once in a while where they try to bring together people on both sides of the so-called aisle that talk with one another, to know each other as human beings. That's Cottage Grove Road. I'm sorry. Cottage Grove Road, not Cottage Grove. The VFW on Cottage Grove Road. Um, another great example is Love, Wisconsin. So Jet and Megan, where are you? All right, right on. So Love Wisconsin, this awesome uh, Facebook page, um, website, where they're telling great stories about people in Wisconsin that cut across partisan divides, that bring people together in dialogue about um, just fascinating people, ordinary people. And they're doing it through these wonderful, just great storytelling documentaries that they do. So I would definitely check them out. And they're staying right by this column here. So afterwards, go meet them if you want to. Megan Monday and Jet Waller. Um, and I think the demand from people in the public that we want something better. We want to live in a state in which people treat each other with decency, in which we don't scapegoat, in which we uh, run our elections based on the merit of policies and the vision of a better life rather than those people deserve less than I do. I think that's where the change is going to come from. Well, we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about uh, higher up on the ticket races. Uh, how have you seen this playing out in terms of the state legislature here and um, any predictions going forward at, at that level? Yeah, well, it's, you know... One way we've seen it play out is in the increasing, um, with redistricting, the, the 
Republican legislative seats trending more rural and Democratic legislative seats trending more urban. And um, you can see that divide in some of the discussions in the legislature. And um, um, for example, and I, I brought along a few um, just pieces of stuff from field work if, if you want to hear some of the words that I've heard in the last few months. But I was uh, looking back today at the um, Rural Wisconsin Initiative, which is an initiative by Republicans in the state assembly to try to bring more attention to um, issues in rural areas, which is, you know, a great idea. But the way that they, they sold this initiative was to talk about it in, you know, rural Wisconsin versus Milwaukee or Madison terms. So, for example, in the press release that uh, um, announced this initiative a year ago, a little over a year ago, it said it's time that rural Wisconsin children had the same opportunities as kids in Milwaukee or Madison. And that kind of hit rhetoric we hear a lot in our state legislature, unfortunately. So as, as a reporter, something that I hear a lot about is, and I guess have, have started to notice, is it does seem like uh, mostly at a national level, we're seeing a lot more pieces uh, going back to Trump voters uh, X many weeks or months after the election to see what do they think now? Do they still support him? What's changed? Um, and I've heard good things about them, and I've heard a lot of people saying, why? You know, you're, you're glorifying something or you're, you're revisiting something that doesn't need to be revisited. You didn't do it with other uh, presidents. Um, why do you think it is that there is this uh, interest that wasn't there before to go back and revisit it, and, and why does it make people so upset to see that happening? Yeah. Well, I think there's an interest in it because it it is a um, it was clearly a really important electoral force or white rural um, folks in the U.S. But there's there's some misconception around that though because it's not the case that that's the majority of the Donald Trump coalition that it tend it actually is more suburban white suburban relatively well to well to do folks who were the majority of the Trump coalition, um, but they are there are they have been sort of you know part of flyover land if you will and and misunderstood and so there's people scrambling to try to understand what happened. But I think it, it ruffles people's feathers because there have been other kind of groups within the electorate that have been important at certain elections. For example, African Americans with the election of Barack Obama. And why wasn't that a big splash and then like a surge of reporting trying to understand the concerns and interests and dreams and, and trials and tribulations of African Americans? Great question to ask. And so I think that's... In large, you know, large part, why it ruffles some people, people's feathers? Like, why are we spending all this time on these white folks when, in the past, maybe we haven't given that kind of attention to other components of the electorate? That is a good saying into a uh, an audience question again. Um, there's a there's a couple questions in here, but um, have people always been resentful? Is it a recent phenomenon? And how do we respond to the concerns of white rural people, white rural folks, without pandering to a historically privileged group? Great question. Yeah, great questions. I think, I mean, resentment is a human emotion, and it's always been there. And it definitely is the case that human beings, we, we want explanations for the challenges that we face, and it's 
It's been a common political strategy to, to point out the challenges you face are due to this group or that group or to give people scapegoats as a kind of easy explanation. And so it's not necessarily a new thing. Um, the politics of resentment is not necessarily a new thing, again, but uh, it struck me as having a kind of um, acuteness at this moment in time that it was, was worth paying attention to. Great question about how do we pay attention to this without ignoring other important dynamics in the electorate or other, other people. And I think the answer is to recognize that what I write about in my book is about one, one particular place, one type of person. But those sentiments of feeling like the political system is not working for people like you is a widespread one, right? It is not just people in rural Wisconsin who are feeling that. How many of you are feeling that in the room tonight, right? I mean, it is the broader story. I think how we get over talking about this group or that group and is by noticing how the system as it currently is, is not working for the vast majority of us. Another audience question. The people you studied have negative attitudes toward liberals and Hillary Clinton, uh, but what is that based on? Uh, are they looking for someone to blame for their problems? And how do you uh, appeal to them without saying the kinds of things Donald Trump says? <laughs> Like, uh, I probably shouldn't. <laughs> I'm not going to answer that question directly. Meaning... Do you want to take what, the first portion of it, maybe? Yeah, well, no, the reason I'm pausing is that the... The question is basically asking, how can people be so stupid, and how do you appeal to people when they're making their decisions on the basis of misinformation. And what I want to share with you is that that same question I get from Trump voters about people who voted for Hillary Clinton. And that's, that's um, it's a problem that we, we're not often recognizing. So a, a little bit of a longer story. Part of the um, craziness of, of, of writing a book that gets attention like this is that you get a lot of communication from people with surface mail, but mainly email, sometimes phone calls. And um, I, over the past year, I, I received so much of that communication that I decided to do an analysis of it so I could more systematically understand what people <laughs> were trying to say to me. And so I analyzed, and a lot of what people were saying to me were, were questions kind of like this, like, how can people be voting for Donald Trump and what is wrong with them? And what I did was to go back to my transcripts from my field work and compare those questions with the kind of questions that people were asking me about those people in the cities. Like, don't your students know that Hillary Clinton, but I mean, and it's, it's remarkable to me just how similar the questions are. So at the same time, the people on the left look at Trump voters and say they're misinformed, they're hypocritical, they're intolerant, um, they're, they, they're being bamboozled. All those same things I hear from people on the right about Hillary Clinton voters. And I think that's sobering, but it's important to note. 
We have a question about Jon Stewart. <laughs> uh, the, an audience member asked, for many people on the right, Jon Stewart and his brand of humor are, are part of the problem. And how was he received when he was going around with you, and how did he respond to that? Well, um, people didn't always recognize him, you know? <laughs> and he has a beard these days, and, and you know, he looked... People who are television personalities, they look really different in person. I mean, they wear a ton of makeup on TV, I guess. Um, and so, so, I mean, for example, we were having lunch with this group of church ladies in, in central Wisconsin at one point, and at the end of the conversation, this woman leans over to me and she says, what did you say his last name was again? <laughs> and I said, Stuart. John, John Stewart, I've heard of him. You know, so they, they, they received him fine. They were asking him about his wife and his kids, and he was just another person, you know. Um, I think there, there were few people we encountered who were really um, offended by him I mean, from past performances. So I, I really, um, there weren't people who uh, were really rubbed the wrong way by him, or if they were, they didn't realize that that was... That was John Stewart that they were talking to. Yeah, uh, we've we've got someone else who wants to know which communities did you focus on, and also um, how can people in an urban community help resolve the divide? Um, I can't say specifically which communities I focused on, just to to give the people I spent time with privacy. Um, but how do you how do you bridge the urban versus rural divide? I think. Just everyday interpersonal relationships, and when you have the chance um, to to ask people questions, I mean, when um, probably a better strategy here you go is when say someone um, from some place not like your own says something that you find to be kind of offensive or curious to to ask or just say, "Tell me why you think that." Tell me more. And to try to listen rather than um, figure out how you counter what they just said. Because all too often, we're, we're trying to get ready to answer, to counteract, to persuade. And um, before that ever happens, you have to make a connection with people and try to understand where they're coming from. And then also, you know, reach out Wisconsin, love Wisconsin. These ways are, are great. There's all kinds of creative stuff being done to try to to bridge divides. Uh, someone who I was, I think, kind of going off of one of the last things we talked about, this uh, divide in terms of uh, thinking the other side is stupid or misinformed or whatever, um, the, the argument or the claim that people are voting against their own interests, uh, how do you respond to, to that uh, when you're looking at the, the frame of your study? Interests are something that we define for ourselves and Social scientists are super guilty of doing this thing of defining for people from afar what their interests are based on their objective characteristics. But human beings make choices about what they value and what they prioritize. And um, when we say people are voting against their interests, they're typically what's happening is they're voting against their interests as we define them. Uh, another audience question. Uh, someone wants you to address the omission of national media in, in your research or in your particular study. Well, I'm working on that now, <laughs> I should say. <laughs> so it's kind of the, on one of my next projects to try to understand 
the messages that people receive in, in social media and traditional media, um, talk radio, as well as through their interpersonal communication, so including the national media. But there's a great group of people at UW-Madison in, in the journalism and mass comm uh, school that I'm really privileged to work with, Devon Shaw and Chris Wells and Lou Friedland and Mike Wagner. And um, together, we're trying to address that question. Excellent. Stay tuned then. Another question, do you predict a rise in third parties or other alternatives to traditional political parties as a means of channeling resentment? Well, it's hard for third parties to survive in our system, but I definitely predict attempts, for sure. <laughs> Another audience one, have you ever thought about running for office yourself? <laughs> Briefly. <laughs> Please elaborate. <laughs> What's my district? Uh, I'm way too private of a person to run for office. You wouldn't know it, me sitting on the stage at the High Noon Saloon. But um, no, I mean, I, uh, I think it's a super noble endeavor. I really do. For those of you in the audience currently running. Um, but I... Um, can't imagine putting the effort it requires into raising money and doing it with my heart. I have a hard time doing things that my whole heart is not in, and that sounds really difficult to me. Is that part of the problem a little bit, that just regular people don't feel like there's an entry point that makes it accessible to go represent other people like them? Absolutely, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay, so why don't you just run anyway, right? Good question. I don't know. <laughs> so I know, I know you've been back to a few of the places that you've uh, revisited throughout this cycle. Um, can you talk a little bit about sort of the interactions you've had uh, both since the book has been published but also after the election? What have you been hearing? Sure. Um, so I brought, I brought along, it's more interesting to hear their words rather than just mine. So I brought along a few excerpts of things I've heard um, right after the election. And I'm sorry if you've already heard me tell this story in another venue. But right after the election, I had made plans to do more field work, primarily just to go back around to some additional groups and give them a copy of my book in person. Um, so uh, the Friday morning after the presidential election, I was in a warehouse in central Wisconsin with a group of guys that get together uh, every morning over coffee. And I asked them, you know, about the election, how they felt. They were happy Trump had won. They supported him. There was a little bit of disagreement in the group. But what I want to share with you is what they hoped would happen because of the election. It was really eye-opening to me. I, I said to them... Um, how do you think he's going to improve life for people around here? And one guy says, we're not sure. And another guy says, nobody knows. And I said, well, what are you hoping for? Um, without knowing what his plan is, one guy said, another guy says, I don't think no matter what president gets in, it's going to change any lifestyle around here for us. And I said, you don't? I'm hoping that one thing, he gets in there and he quits spending and, and controls all this spending. And I said, okay. And he says, because this money, it just it can't just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper in the hole. 
And another guy says, yeah, the spending and the deficit is what is really killing us. So they were telling to me, yeah, we voted for Trump, but we don't actually think he's going to change our lives. We don't think he's going to improve our lives, which was pretty eye-opening to me. And then the Monday after the weekend, I was in, far away from there, a couple hundred miles away from that group in a gas station in the morning, and I asked basically the same question. I said, so I'd love to know, what do you think he's going to do for folks around here? Nothing, Ron says, nothing. We're used to living in poverty. We're used to it. It ain't never going to change. How many times we got to tell you that, Kathy? But you don't listen. <laughs> yeah. And so they're basically saying to me, you know, we don't, we don't expect anything is going to change. So that's one thing I've been hearing, which kind of sobering, right? Um, at one, and a few months later, I think this was over the summer, I was with a, a group of um, women who get together for lunch once a week. And I, and I just said point blank, you know, I'm going around the country, been invited to talk in various places, and people are saying to me, how can people vote for Trump? They're clearly voting against their interests. How can the people you wrote about in your book, how can they vote for Trump? So I went to this group of women and I said, how do you respond? What do you say back to that? To someone saying to you like, how can they not know that voting for Trump is voting against their interests? And a woman named Carrie said, well, viewing what our viewpoint of Hillary is, or should I say my viewpoint of Hillary and what she has done and my viewpoint of Trump, what he has done, if we, do, if we do pros and cons, Trump wins. I mean, that's all you can do. We need change. We need change, another woman said. We really need the change. We need the change. <laughs> so um, part of it, you know, they're telling me they, you know, I should say, one extra I don't have an example of here is, yeah, people, a lot of people do not like Trump's behavior. I mean, they really dislike his tweeting behavior, but they think that he was the better alternative and they really wanted change. And that's not, you know, that's not everybody in rural Wisconsin, um, but those are just some examples of the kind of thing I've been hearing. This, I don't know if this is too specific or not. We've got a sort of geographically specific question. Um, do you have any specific observations about a political shift in the driftless area of the state? I, I don't, to be honest. I'm, I'm puzzling through it myself. I don't, um, I know um, one person just before the event was explaining to me the shift that he's observed. Um, I, don't, I don't have any great insight that some, I bet there are others in you who have more insight on it than I do. Where and how do Bernie Sanders supporters fit into this conversation? Good question. I mean, it's, it's that, that theme of change, 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 right, was really a big one behind Bernie Sanders' success here in Wisconsin, too, right? I mean, he won every county in the primary except Milwaukee County. It was a significant level of support. Um, and I think it, although it's not necessarily the case that the same people who supported Sanders also supported Trump. I mean, that for most studies suggest it's a pretty small segment actually. But the similar dynamics fed both, right? That sense of something has got to be different that something is really broken about our political system and we need someone in there who's willing to fight for significant change. Um, 
Bernie Sanders represented a very different kind of change than Donald Trump, but I think this similar kind of sentiment fed support for both. Yeah. Uh, what is your best advice for how to change for the for the better the political climate in Wisconsin? It's not a hard one. <laughs> it's hard and yet it's simple. I mean, my so this is my Kathy Kramer best advice. And that is to demand better of each other and our politicians. And I, and I say both because we have to demand better of the people representing us. But I think it's almost and maybe more powerful in our everyday life to expect more of each other and the way we talk about each other and the solutions that we tell each other are appropriate. And I think when you have that feeling that you, that the political system is so broken and you're without hope and um, there's, there's just no end in sight. For me personally, it's really helpful just to think about my own sphere of influence, right? And where can I, what networks of people within, you know, what spheres can I make the world a better place and start there? And we all have the power to do that, whether it's our family, our group of friends, our religious networks, so forth and so on. I mean, that stuff cumulatively can be really powerful. Uh, something else I've been curious about, kind of as we've been talking about this, is um, another sort of uh, effect of, of 2016 was that Wisconsin, for the first time in a long time, became a, a red state as opposed to a blue state, even though arguably at the state level that had changed a, a while before that. As this sort of rural, urban, other, you know, haves and haves not divide uh, kind of continues to manifest, do you think we're going to stop looking at things as red and blue? Do you think it hurts us to be looking at things as red state, blue state, red county, blue county? If you're a political scientist, it's very helpful. <laughs> um. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's good. To, I mean, no, I think it. I mean, I think it's harmful. I think it's. I think it's good to remember that we're a purple state, and that can be a good thing. Meaning, in in every place, there's a mix of people politically, and um, just. Yeah, the more we parse ourselves and, and draw boundaries and, and draw clear pictures of those type of people live here and those type of people live there, it makes it more and more difficult to, to build a bridge. So you talked a little bit about some upcoming research. What else is on the forefront for you? I mean, research-wise, we know you're, you're apparently not running for office. <laughs> Well, another thing that I'm working on is with a, a group of people at the MIT Media Lab. Um, this is way out there for me. But so here I am, this person using this super low-tech methodology, right? I mean, I'm driving around the state drinking coffee in gas stations. <laughs> um, and I uh, just by chance... Um, got to meet uh, a man who runs a machine learning artificial intelligence lab at the MIT Media Lab. And together, we're trying to figure out a way to, to harness technology um, for the broader public good, meaning how do we 
use social media? How do we use um, technology to listen better to people in the public in a way that gets deeper at what our concerns are than polling typically can? And how do we bridge different communities? How do we enable people to communicate with people unlike themselves in a way that's truly about listening? Um, we'll see where that goes, but it's that, that's another thing on the horizon where um, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of social media, um, but I think we're kind of in a growing stage in terms of how we as human beings figure out how to use this stuff for better, to make our lives better rather than to just make us crazy. And um, there's a lot to learn, but I think there's, there is potential there and there is hope there. And will the resentment research, the rural research, will that continue too? Well, I am going to be going back to many of these groups as the gubernatorial race ramps up and, and more groups. And I'm going to try and have a little more uh, courage this time and spend a little more time in bars <laughs> with people in their 20s and 30s. Uh, younger folks is it's a demographic I did not spend a lot of time with because I basically chickened out. Um, <laughs> Yeah, just, you know, because I imagine how is this going to work? I'm going to sidle up to the bar and say, hey, I'm Kathy. <laughs> you mind if I sit down? <laughs> so, yeah, but I, uh, you know, I care about this state deeply, and these issues are going to be with me for a long time. Yep. Well, we are uh, we're at our 8 o'clock time limit. Uh, if there's anything else you want to leave people with, you can. Yeah. But Get on your feet, like this. Yeah, this will make you feel better, I promise. When I was a college student at UW-Madison, yep, there was a time when there were events in the field house, right? Lots of events, including Jesse Jackson came and gave a talk. And he taught us all this. Um, here, Jesse, you hold, you hold this, okay. okay. Okay, keep hope alive. 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 Okay, so I guess this really was about the politics of dancing. <laughs> Thank you all. Thank you very so much. much, everyone, for coming out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Cap Times Talks. We put these together about once a month or so. In the meantime, you can check out our other podcasts, including The Corner Table, The Cost of Opportunity, and another show brimming with great conversations just like this one called Live from Cap Times Idea Fest. Please subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you may find podcasts. And thanks again for listening.